0: via Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or whatever your podcast platform of choice is. Go to spyscape.com slash spyscape plus for details
1: incoming
0: transmission welcome 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 to true spies Week by week, mission by mission, you'll hear the true stories behind the world's greatest espionage operations. You'll meet the people who navigate this secret world. What do they know? What are their skills? And what would you do in their position? This is True Spies.
1: So he leaned across He said, I warn you, these men, are bloodthirsty killers, and that is why I chose you for the case. Well, my vanity was tickled, for sure.
0: This is True Spies. Episode 105, Undercover in the Old West. In the American West of the 1880s and 1890s, catching criminals and bringing them to justice was famously the job of sheriffs posses, and bounty hunters. But there was another way in which villains could be caught. Through the work of private detectives. Working undercover and gathering evidence for paying customers. Men able to blend into the frontier outlaw culture, while all the time working on the side of law and order. (laughs) Or at least something close to it.
1: Late at night, I did have a habit when short of recreation in some of the less refined saloons of climbing up on the bar and howling like a wolf.
0: One of the most successful and notorious of these was Charlie A. Siringo, known as the cowboy detective.
1: Declaring to all who might be interested that I had two sets of razor-sharp teeth, one for digging up graveyards and the other for tearing up human flesh. Well, it certainly helped to relieve the monotony of the frontier life.
0: Charlie Seringo was a man of action, never without his trusty Colt 45 revolver, but he was also a storyteller, an enthusiastic spinner of yarns about the dying days of the Old West. Some of his exploits have passed into legend, living on through film, literature, and song. What you're about to hear is a recreation inspired by Charlie Seringo's memoirs and the writings of others about him. His words are spoken by an actor, who we've tasked with capturing Charlie's love of a good story. The events described are real, although this account may reflect Charlie's viewpoints. Colorado, 1890. The small mining town of Fairplay, One of the town's saloons, a drinking den, dance hall and brothel. Sometime in the small hours.
1: I'll tell you. Uncouth behavior is sometimes required in the detective's line of work. In order to persuade the bad man to drop his guard, you got to convince him first that you're one of his kind too, not somebody you want to mess with.
0: Charlie is in town undercover, under a false name, and he's in the saloon trying to gain the trust of the main suspect in a case, a man known as Mr. Jackie.
1: Well, we had a glorious drunk on by this stage, although... I was trying to convince him that I was drunker than was truly the case.
0: Mr. Jackie is a convicted felon, suspected of involvement in a gold mine fraud amounting to hundreds of thousands of dollars.
1: My role at that stage to convince Mr. Jackie that we were two peas in a pod. I'd been hinting that I was an outlaw, wanted by the authorities.
0: But in order to convince Jackie to trust him, Charlie needs something more than hints.
1: A group of fellas come over to our table, They're swaggery, and they began to speak to one of Jackie's friends, and the place was loud. I couldn't even hear the words, but you could see the demeanor of the largest of them, a big, tough-looking fella, even by the standards of this saloon, and he was acting disrespectful and everything. Anyway, so naturally, Jackie's friend did not wish to be talked to in such a way. Now, in my line of work, you learn to spy when a man is fixing to speak with his fists. In this case, it was a blade.
0: The man holds the knife up to Jackie's friend's neck.
1: Put simply, they want our table to know that while we might think that we were running things here, we were mistaken in that regard. They believed, and I mean firmly, that they were running
0: things. And Charlie knows that he has a choice, to calm the situation and maybe lose face, or to escalate and risk a more violent outcome.
1: I stood up, felt for the butt of my old Colts 45 and took a step forward.
0: Charlie Syringa was born in rural Texas in 1856, the child of an Irish mother and Italian father. Cowboy culture was all around during his childhood.
1: Yeah, I wanted to be one of those glorious fellows on horseback more than I can say. Even as a schoolboy, I spent every free minute Learning to ride, to lasso, to
0: follow trails. Aged just 11, he began training at a local ranch. Throughout his teenage years, and most of his 20s, he traveled the country, catching and herding cattle. A crucial training period for his future career as a cowboy detective.
1: Being a cowboy wasn't a costume or a disguise for me. It was my life. Which at least meant I could never be exposed as a fraud in that regard. And the cowboy life is one that's very close to that of an outlaw. And it's the life that I still dream of, even now, if I'm honest.
0: One evening, while Charlie is still working with cattle, he attends a public event that changes things. He's in the small town of Caldwell, Kansas.
1: There were flyposts across the place. Uh, Come see the great blind phrenologist. Discover your destiny written in your skull or something to that effect. Well, I'd always seen phrenology as little more than hot air or fortune-telling in a doctor's coat. However, I attended, and presently, the great blind phrenologist called me up on stage.
0: In front of the audience, the performer begins massaging Charlie's head, feeling for bumps that might reveal his true nature.
1: (laughs) He first identified my obstinacy bump, which got a good laugh from the crowd, most of whom knew me. But then he went further pressing over my left ear. He waited for a moment, and then he said that, with such a skull, I would find the greatest success as a newspaperman, a writer, or a detective. Well, here I am.
0: Soon after, Charlie travels to Chicago and applies to join America's largest and most powerful detective company, the infamous Pinkerton's Detective Agency.
1: I knew little of the detecting business, but tracking cattle thieves and becoming a good shot with a revolver would, I presumed, prove useful.
0: This is the height of the Old West, and law and order in many towns and cities across America is fragile. Police forces are in their infancy. It is easy for criminals to move from town to town, assuming new identities as they go. So private detective agencies are growing to fill a need. Pinkerton's at this stage employs tens of thousands of armed agents and detectives across the country. It's been described as more like a private army than a detective agency. Pinkerton agents provide security to politicians, solve crimes, chase criminals, and provide muscle to those who are willing to pay. You don't want to be on the wrong side of Pinkerton.
1: Walking into the central Chicago office on my first day felt like a marvel. Dozens of detectives working together in a secret section of the office. The entrance was through a disguised door so that no one would know of their true employment. You understand?
0: The Pinkerton offices were a beehive of activity and, for the time, surprisingly diverse. The agency needed a variety of faces to successfully infiltrate their targets.
1: They even employed women.
0: In fact, the phrase private eye comes from Pinkerton. Their logo a watching eyeball, and the slogan, We Never Sleep.
1: Over time, I became disillusioned by many of the dishonorable things I saw happen under the eyeball. But when I first
0: joined, I was impressed. In Chicago, Charlie learns the essential skills of undercover work, the ability to build and inhabit a cover story, the knack of building trust with a target, the need to think on your feet.
1: Some of it came naturally. I enjoyed the freedom to create new histories for myself, and I always had a taste for danger.
0: Some of it he's taught by other agents.
1: From the others, I learned how to gather evidence, uh, frame a report, and the essentials of criminal law for prosecutions. And how to double my expenses every time I bought a meal or rented a hotel room. In those days, it was the Pinkerton way. The great blind phrenologist was right. I guess. If there is a detecting bump on my skull, it's served me well.
0: After a few months, Charlie is called into the office by his manager and told that there is so much demand for Pinkerton detectives out west that they urgently need new staff, cowboy detectives, to help. Would he agree to move to the new office in Denver? And
1: that was how I found myself, on the trail of the Keyline Ranch Gang.
0: An attorney in the city of Cheyenne, Wyoming, has written to Pinkerton requesting help. A large group of suspected outlaws are known to be living at a remote ranch on the Laramie River. And amongst them is believed to be an escaped murderer, Bill McCoy.
1: So, Mr. McCoy had killed a man, a deputy sheriff, and he'd been tried and convicted of murder out in Cheyenne. But he and his friends had shown great resourcefulness in busting him out of jail before the day he was supposed to hang. They disappeared, and our people figured they were living under new identities at the ranch.
0: Siringo is put on the case.
1: I knew this would be a testing assignment.
0: He would have to live among his targets for some time, far from any support from other Pinkerton men. If he was discovered, he would be on his own.
1: They were going to be on their guard. Three agents from a rival detective agency already tried to infiltrate the gang. They'd been rooted out, and they
0: escaped with their lives just about. The last stop before the gang's camp was a rough but hospitable staging post, called the Roundup No. 5 Saloon. Charlie was the only customer. The owner and his wife begged the cowboy detective to abandon his pursuit, warning him, entirely correctly, that there were dangerous men further up the trail. Men who didn't take kindly to outsiders.
1: I thanked them for their advice and their whiskey, but saddled up and
0: continued. Charlie needs a story to explain why he is paying the gang a visit. Something that will establish him as worthy of respect, but unthreatening.
1: A few hours after I'd left the saloon, I came upon a small bluff, a rocky outcrop with a sheer drop of maybe 20 feet on sand on the other side. It truly paid me to do this, but I dismounted, led my faithful horse up to the ledge of the drop, and then I pushed him over the ledge.
0: The horse hits the ground hard but is not seriously hurt. Charlie throws himself after it, earning himself a sore arm in the process. But now the imprints of man and beast are clear in the sand. Now he attends to his appearance.
1: I ripped off my left pant leg below the knee and then created a tight bandage around the leg.
0: He rubs the flesh of his leg raw so that it begins to swell and turn red. Don't worry, there's a method to his madness.
1: I rode with it out of the stirrups, sticking at an angle.
0: A few miles on at sunset, he reaches a fence at the edge of the ranch land.
1: I was nervous, I don't deny it, and I did wonder whether this might be my last adventure. Bill McCoy had already killed one lawman, and I was sure he wouldn't mind repeating the experience. As I drew up to the fence, men started pouring out, about 14 of them, all armed.
0: The leader, a man called Tom Hall, asks Charlie to identify himself and why he's come to their ranch.
1: A sad story, of course. I'd been riding near the trail, become lost, and then met with a most unfortunate accident. Evidence of my broken leg and bruised horse being clear for all to see. Would you, kind sirs, be able to afford me a little time
0: and shelter to recuperate? The gang is unsure. But Tom Hall lets Charlie inside and puts him by the fire.
1: I acted the part of the grateful invalid, but he took a real interest in my broken leg, asking me if if I could move it, bringing hot towels, suggesting a new bandage, and so on. I attempted to distract him as best I could, but I couldn't shake him, and he had questions.
0: Charlie reveals the second part of the story, hinting that he too is on the run.
1: When he asked why I had left home in Texas for such a cold climate, I just smiled and I told him that the good people of Texas were very keen for me to stay, and that if I were to return, it was possible I would never again have the chance to leave.
0: Tom Hall doesn't seem to be buying it. The atmosphere is tense. Even though it is now dark, two of the gang are sent to examine the spot where Charlie claims he had his accident. When they return, the whole group holds a meeting out of earshot of Charlie. They're gone a long time.
1: One faction was strongly in favor of taking me to a tree in the yard and hanging me gradually to see if I would confess to being a detective. The other group argued for letting me stay a while and seeing if I gave myself away as a lawman.
0: And if you did, put it this way, there'd be nothing gradual about what happened next.
1: That faction prevailed.
0: A stay of execution.
1: That first night was not restful. The men slept all in the main room, on cots, and as a guest and an invalid, I was allowed a small room to one side. I suspected that half of them were waiting for me to attempt to creep out during the night. They might also have rushed me in my sleep.
0: Luckily for Charlie, the gang had missed the revolver hidden in his undershirt.
1: I clutched it under the blankets like a baby girl with a china doll till the sun come up.
0: The next few days are a delicate dance between Charlie and the group. Both sides attempting to find out the real identity of the other. Both sides waiting to see if the other will slip up. And there is another problem. Charlie realizes that he knows one of the men. Jim McChesney, another Texan, who our detective had known in his youth.
1: At first, I wasn't sure if he remembered, but one morning in the kitchen, started to fix a stare on me.
0: If McChesney recognizes Charlie, he may know that Charlie's stories about an outlaw past in Texas are lies, just what the gang suspects.
1: So often I found that hesitation is more hazardous than bold, foolish action. So I asked him loudly so everybody could hear, when did you finish courting with that pretty Miss Matilda LeBeau? That had been his sweetheart in those days. He burst out laughing and asked who the hell I was that I knew that. I told him that from now on, you could call me Charlie Leon and that I knew all about him and his youth.
0: It works. McChesney is persuaded that Charlie is really a wanted member of a Texan crime family called the Pumphreys and begins to relax around him.
1: As a detective, one grows used to being trusted only when people believe you to be a liar a vagabond or a wanted killer.
0: The decision has been made. Charlie is part of the gang now. Over the next few weeks, he slowly gathers together evidence against all of them.
1: We went on these tremendous drinking sprees. Sometimes the saloons we passed through looked like a hurricane had hit them. And strangely, I grew to like them fellas, although it was my intention to betray every one of them and send them all to the penitentiary.
0: The leader of the gang admits to being the accomplice of a notorious murderer. Others confess to taking part in robberies and jailbreaks.
1: But I discovered that my true prey, Mr. Bill McCoy, the sheriff killer, had already run off down to New Orleans. The gang was in correspondence with him and they heard that he was planning to leave for Buenos Aires, Argentina. During
0: drinking binges, Charlie often slips away to a hotel to write and post reports to Pinkerton head office.
1: I invented a girl in town who I was most attached to and would need to visit until daybreak while they were out carousing. And on one evening, I decided it had come time to elope with this irresistible sweetheart of mine. I left the gang at the bar, rode to the station, and hopped on the next train out of town.
0: A few days later, at daybreak, the ranch is surrounded by a posse of over 100 men, led by local law enforcement. Every man in the gang is taken away in irons. Tom Hall is heard cursing Charlie's name.
1: I had a job to do, and I did it well.
0: Charlie investigates many cases across the West in the following years, including train heists, attempted political assassinations, and gold mine robberies. In Utah, he's called on to investigate a massacre of Native Americans instigated by a local sheriff.
1: A shameful, disgusting business. The sheriff claimed there'd been an uprising by the Ute Indians of White River and called out the militia to put it down, which they did with deadly force. But cold-blooded murder of the Utes by the white man would be a better description. We used to call the Utes and other people savages, but after that, I had to wonder who the real savages were.
0: Charlie is also becoming disillusioned with the corruption he witnesses at the Pinkerton Agency. He sees agents framing innocent people, agents using torture to get confessions, and agents taking part in electoral fraud. I saw a lot of
1: things, and I am ashamed to say my honor and my manhood were many times insufficient to allow me to protest or prevent the injustice. So I was happiest when working alone, far from the office, on the cases that I could choose.
0: One such case comes up in 1889, a case that will test all his abilities as an undercover agent.
1: I was called into the Denver office of the agency and told that we'd acquired a very high class and respected client. The Lord Mayor of London himself needed our help.
0: America's gold rush is in full swing, and wealthy people across the world are keen to get their slice of the riches, even in London,
1: England. His Lord Highness had paid more than $250,000 for shares and equipment in the mudsill mine in Park County, Colorado.
0: That would be about $7.5 million in today's money.
1: He had been assured that the mud sill was filled with untouched gold. Well, the name of the nearest town should have been a warning. The mine was built next to the town of Fair Play, Colorado. And, of course, in a gold rush, there is no such thing.
0: Before buying the mine, the Lord Mayor had had two experts check the quality of the ore. The amount of gold in each ton of earth. Both surveys had come back good. But after he had bought the mine, something worrying had emerged.
1: Another expert inspected the samples and he noticed that there wasn't just gold in the test samples, but silver too.
0: Either the Lord Mayor has accidentally bought a silver mine as well as a gold mine, or someone had been tampering with the test samples to make them look more valuable a process known as salting.
1: My job was to secretly investigate whether the mine had been salted and, if it had been, to catch the culprits.
0: The situation was made doubly sensitive by the fact that Mr. Pinkerton, Charlie's boss, had a close relative with an interest in the mine. Charlie assumes the false name he has used on other cases, Charlie Leon, and just as with the ranch case, he builds a cover story as a wanted man from Texas. The owner of the mine has been in London negotiating the sale. But Charlie learns that that man has a local agent, Mr. Jackie.
1: Now, Mr. Jackie was not the kind of fellow you would take for high tea and crumpets at Buckingham Castle. He was what we call a bad man.
0: He carried a pistol openly on his belt at all times and was feared and loved in equal measure by local bartenders. His entourage also enjoyed the benefits of his reputation.
1: I suspected, strongly, I would need to earn a place in Jackie's circle in order to crack the case.
0: Things start badly. The owner of one of the town's saloons recognizes Charlie from his cowboy days and nearly breaks his cover.
1: I had to impress on him that I was now Charlie Leon and that it would be best if he forgot the name Charlie Siringo entirely.
0: Then Charlie's work-life balance becomes a liability.
1: I knew this would be a long case, so I'd arranged for my wife Mamie and our little daughter Viola to move into lodgings near the town. But for discretion and safety, Mamie was introduced as the niece of a friend. We let people know we were courting, all very romantic, you know. That story came under question when Viola started calling me Papa in front of the landlord. I couldn't be sure how long it would be until my story was fully exposed.
0: All of which explains the choice that Charlie faces that night at the dance hall in Fairplay the incident that began this episode. He's drinking with Jackie's group when a rival gang enters the bar and puts a knife to Mr. Jackie's friend's throat. Charlie's choices in that moment being to de-escalate or to risk a gun battle to prove himself to Jackie. What would you do?
1: As I said, bold foolishness is often the wisest course. I stood up, I fell for my 45 and took a step forward and struck the man quite brutally across his nose with the butt of my
0: revolver. The assailant drops his knife, raising his hands to his face, which is now bleeding profusely. No one reacts for a moment. Then...
1: The situation became confused. Fists and bottles flying freely in the brawl. One of them dealt me a good punch to the stomach and it doubled over in front of him. As I went down, I saw he was reaching for his pistol.
0: But Charlie is quick. Before the man can raise his weapon, the cowboy detective's 45 is pointing at his face.
1: He froze. And so did his friends after a moment or two. I pushed them back on the point of the Colt towards the door. And indicated that he and the rest of his gang should leave. Depart. Scram. Which they did. We were quite the heroes after that. But a few hours later, the girls of the establishment heard word that the same group was returning even drunker, along with reinforcements and ammunition. The ladies insisted that Jackie and myself should lock ourselves in the saloon cellar for our own protection. I protested, saying I wanted to fight every one of them hand-to-hand, but I was secretly relieved when the ladies insisted. They let us out the next morning.
0: By which point, Charlie's relationship with Jackie has deepened.
1: Well, I was alive, and Mr. Jackie was now convinced that I was a ruthless outlaw, just like himself. He saw me as a brother. A number of the townsfolk warned my sweetheart Mamie to steer clear of me as a ruffian and an associate of dancehall girls after that. Prudent advice, no doubt.
0: The rest of Jackie's gang remained suspicious of Charlie, however. So he decides on a new strategy.
1: I was convinced that he had salted the mine, or at least knew the full story. But with his boys around all day watching me, I was never going to hear a confession. I needed to get him on his own. So I suggested that we enter business together as prospectors and travel alone for a few weeks trying our luck with this gold business. Most unwisely, he agreed.
0: The trust building is complete. While they are camping out on the mountains, Charlie takes on the job of collecting Jackie's mail from a local town.
1: His boys are still writing him, warning him that
0: I might be a detective. Charlie created his own special mailbox for this correspondence. A hole in the ground, covered by a rock. So
1: he never saw a word they wrote.
0: And gradually, round the campfire, the truth comes out.
1: He told me his real name, not the one he lived under, and that he had spent time in the penitentiary in Nebraska. Naturally, I passed all that on to our office.
0: And talk turns to the strange ore found in the Lord Mayor's mind.
1: Of course he'd salted it, under instruction from the owner. He told me that he had spent weeks secretly adding foreign ore to the mine shaft they'd sampled. His Highness, the Mayor, was a true victim of fair play.
0: And the confession goes further.
1: This wasn't even the first time. Years earlier, they'd sold the same mine before to a gentleman from Cincinnati who also fell for the trick. That man sold it back to them at a loss of tens of thousands of dollars.
0: Charlie has what he needs.
1: Mr. Jackie was tricked into paying a visit to Denver, where other Pinkerton agents confronted him and obtained a confession. I was shocked when they showed him a copy of his Nebraska mugshot. And Sir Lord Mayor in merry old England? He had the evidence he needed to take the owner of the mine to court. I believe he obtained some sizable fraction of the money he had so foolishly expended.
0: Charlie is by now one of Pinkerton's most valuable and experienced undercover agents in the West. He is often called on when other detectives have failed or been found out. And this is the situation, at first, with one of Charlie's most famous and influential cases. The agency offers him the Coeur d'Alene union case.
1: I refused it at first, on principle. I don't hold in general with
0: union busting. But the Pinkerton Agency has a reputation for union busting providing mine and factory owners with the muscle to break up strikes and protests by labor unions. And in frontier towns, the battles between union and management can be deadly. Pinkerton's undercover agents are also used to infiltrate unions, planting misinformation and gathering intelligence for the bosses. And it is this kind of undercover work that Charlie is being asked to do in Coeur d'Alene. A big
1: fuss was brewing in the gold and silver mines of Coeur Idaho, the workers protesting, as I heard, for higher wages. Although I had worked cases like this, my sympathies, generally, were with the working man, not with the plutocrat.
0: But Charlie's supervisor asks him to reconsider. The last undercover agent they had sent had been quickly sniffed out by the union. In fact, he'd barely made it out with his life.
1: Pinkerton needed someone with my experience to have a chance of finding out what was being planned. So my manager, Mr. McCartney, made me an offer. Charlie, if you go to Idaho and you find those union boys are in the right, you can drop the case. But if you find otherwise, we'll need your help.
0: A few weeks later, Charlie arrives at the small mining settlement of Jem, near Coeur posing as a manual laborer. The mining company fixes the books so that he is offered a job close to senior union members. I
1: kept my head down for a while, then joined the union, and after a couple months, rose to become recording secretary, a useful position because my presence was needed for every meeting where plans were being laid.
0: In the Old West, joining a labor union requires a certain commitment.
1: In the initiation ceremony... I swore an oath that I was willing to bleed and die for the sake of the Honourable Gem Miners Union, and that if I betrayed my brothers, death would be my justified fate.
0: And these are not idle threats. What Charlie sees in the town shocks him. The union leadership is preparing for a full war with management. They begin systematically targeting scabs, non-union members working in the mines or living in the town. The leadership have a policy of publishing the names of scabs who are suspected of disloyalty and then marching them out of their homes.
1: You'd hear handbells ringing and this cacophony of spoons on frying pans through the streets. That was a signal that a scab was being expelled, often with a weeping wife and young family in tow. Union members came out on the street to abuse and spit on them as they went by. At that time, it was winter, and the Union would march them to the edge of the town, in the snow, with no provisions, and tell them to start walking to the next settlement, 30 miles away. A few gunshots overhead to encourage them on their way. I no longer had doubts about the justice of my employment.
0: As usual, Charlie takes care to drink with the leaders, and to build his reputation as a tough man to be trusted. He finds out that the Union is planning to declare its war formally in the spring, and that a secret death squad of Union members has been put together to kill any traitors in the town suspected of opposing the Union.
1: My official job was now drinking whiskey and watching anarchy grow. But by night, I had to write reports and convey them to the agency. The nearest post office, out of Union control, was a few miles away used to have to walk out there before dawn so I didn't get suspicion.
0: And when the Union officially declares its war, the mine owners are ready, thanks to Charlie's reports. Several hundred armed scabs are brought in by train to occupy the mine. It's a standoff, hundreds of men on both sides. And the question is raised, who tipped off the mine owners?
1: An all-hands union meeting was called to discuss the issue of the traitor in our midst, and naturally, as recording secretary, I was expected to attend.
0: Charlie knows to expect trouble.
1: A few days before, a union member who I was friends with warned me that I was suspected of being the spy. I thanked him for his advice.
0: Of course, Charlie's friend didn't believe a word of it. But, as he explained, Charlie had been seen mailing too many letters and was too recent a recruit for suspicion not to land on him. The day of the big union meeting arrives.
1: On the day, I made sure to have my old Colts 45 tucked in my undershirt and my bowie knife. But if it came to that, it'd be a question of hundreds against one. Any attempt by me to go out fighting would be purely a matter of honor.
0: The union president introduces the session, and then hands off to their appointed investigator. Uh, Mr. Dallas.
1: A beast walking on two hind legs, in my considered view.
0: Dallas began by standing up and taking a long look at Charlie. It is not a nice look.
1: Brothers, we have a traitor and a spy in our midst. Or words to that effect. And if he is found to be in this hall tonight, I'll warn him. He should not expect to leave this place alive.
0: Mr. Dallas continues for some time and begins listing the evidence that Charlie is a traitor.
1: I can attest that the threat of a noose around your neck or a bullet reordering the insides of
0: your skull is quite a wonderful stimulus to concentration. Eventually, Charlie is given the chance to answer for himself. I was aware that guilt
1: in these situations is assessed as much by demeanor as by evidence. So I kept a calm exterior, but inside, my heart was racing. And lucky for me, Mr. Dallas had blundered. He asked me, Why one of the pages from our meeting notes was missing? Had I cut it out to send to my detective agency employers? Well, there was a simple explanation.
0: Charlie pointed out that none other than the union's president had asked him to strike the offending page from the record, as its contents implicated the union in plans to commit violent acts against its enemies.
1: So its absence was a sign of loyalty, not betrayal.
0: Charlie sways the audience to some degree, at least enough to avoid being lynched on the spot. In the days that follow, he makes preparations for his escape.
1: I saw a hole in the floorboards of the living room of the house I was renting. It was the ground floor, and there was no cellar below. But there was a small space between floorboards and packed earth, enough for a hiding place, and I prepared my rifle and pistol with plenty of ammunition...
0: The stalemate between the Union and the anti-Union forces grows ever more tense. The scabs control the mine. The Union control the town. In Jem, suspected traitors are beaten in the streets. A detective from another agency is exposed and shot dead. And Charlie receives another warning.
1: This time, it was even more direct. Another union member warned me that a man called Black Jack had recognized me and knew I was a Pinkerton man, and he had spoken with Mr. Dallas. The union's plan? Simply to tie me up and burn me to death at the stake.
0: For the next few days, Charlie goes on the run, hiding at different locations, slipping in and out of the town to provide intelligence to the non-union forces. Until one day, he is cornered in his lodgings. Dozens of union members surround the building, crowding the street.
1: I made my apologies to my landlady, took my rifle and forty-five, and descended through the trapdoor. She was considerate enough to replace the carpet and place furniture over the entrance to my escape hole.
0: Through the floorboards, Charlie could hear the mob's entrance and their interrogation of the long-suffering landlady. Inches from his face, The boots of his would-be executioners pounded out an ominous tattoo.
1: God bless her, she stayed firm. She gave them no clue as to my location.
0: There is a problem with this hiding place. Charlie has not thought to create an exit.
1: I surveyed my position. There was a chink of light coming from the side of the building facing the street. Crawling forward on my belly, I realized that there was a small space about a foot high underneath the boardwalk in front of the building, and that this boardwalk continued in front of
0: all the buildings in the street. By crawling through this space, Charlie is able slowly to move along the main street. Through cracks, I could see the
1: crowds waiting in the street, hoping for me to be dragged out. At one point, I even had a clear line of sight through the boards to Mr. Dallas, sitting with his shotgun. And for a minute, I considered making him the prey. I had a clear shot with my gun, but drawing attention to my position with gunfire did not appeal.
0: He continues crawling from house front to house front.
1: At several points, I thought myself stuck completely and wondered whether this would be the end, either discovered and killed like a rat or expiring slowly under the boardwalk. I asked myself whether I was afraid and to test, I tried spitting in the dirt in front of me. The experiment was a success. My mouth was utterly dry. I was most assuredly afraid.
0: Eventually, he reaches the saloon on the corner of the street, where there is a gap in the planks at the back of the building. The main street is still filled with union members.
1: Fortunately, the exit point was at the rear of the building in a side street. I raised myself up and saw the sky again. Then I got another opportunity, facing away from me with three union members, watching the commotion, hoping to take part in my lynching. I held my rifle in my hand and took aim, but it seemed ungentlemanly.
0: Charlie makes it across the front line to the non-union forces occupying the mine, and soon after is able to return to Pinkerton's offices in Dallas. In Coeur d'Alene, an armed siege of the mine develops, with casualties on both sides. Eventually, the union forces are put down when the governor calls in the army. Thanks to Charlie's intelligence, the plans of the Union leaders are known well in advance.
1: I was informed that my information played a notable role in the outcome of that conflict and of the eventual triumph of the Constitution and justice. And I have no regrets on that part, whether or not it makes yours truly a scab.
0: Charlie eventually retires from the Pinkerton Agency and becomes a best-selling author of books about his life as a cowboy detective. In his old age, he finds a final career Advising Hollywood script writers, making films about the Old West.
1: Remember that great blind phrenologist? He predicted success for me as a detective and an author. And I venture to suggest that my writing bump has served me well, too. Nevertheless, I still miss the days of sleeping by the campfire with the stars for a blanket and my pack for a pillow. But isn't that just what you'd expect an old cowpuncher to say?
0: You can read more of Charlie's life and adventures in his memoirs A Texas Cowboy and Cowboy Detective. We also made use of Charlie Seringo's West by Howard Lamar. I'm Vanessa Kirby. Join us next week for another full-throttle encounter with True Spies.